I got word this afternoon that, um, that uh, Mike Lee is, should be home by now. They were releasing him this afternoon from the hospital, and so he should be home. So pray for him, pray for Rhonda as uh, she cares for him and as he begins the healing process from the amputation. Um, it'll be quite a journey for them, and so just pray. Uh, while they are allowing the, the fresh wound to heal, they're going to be doing therapy on the other leg, preparing it for the prosthesis. And so it's going to be um, uh, just a very busy time for him, and I know they appreciate your prayers. All right, we are in chapter number 63. If you're taking notes, let me give you the first one, then I'll read the verse, I'll pray, then we'll get into the lesson. Number one is the wrath of the Lamb at Armageddon. The wrath of the Lamb, of course, talk about the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as He returns in power and might in the second coming and destroys all of His enemies. In Isaiah 63 and verse 1, it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in His apparel, traveling in the greatness of His strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, lest there's any confusion here, who would say, I am mighty to save? Well, that tends to limit the, the pool, and that's how we begin to understand that who is talking here is the Messiah, Jesus Christ Himself. Let me pray, and then we'll get into the lesson. Jesus, dear Lord, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity once again to meet together and to open your word and to study it. And Lord, the uh, truths we'll discuss tonight are just way too enormous for us to grasp apart from your Holy Spirit. So Spirit of God, would you meet with us tonight and lead us and guide us and would you teach us these passages and give to us what we need to be more like you, for we love you in Jesus' name, amen. We're wrapping it up, and tonight, Lord willing, we're going to go through two chapters, 63 and 64, and uh, which means uh, buckle your seatbelt because we're really going to have to go pretty quickly to get through it. Now, after tonight, we've got two more chapters, and I'll take those much slower because it'll be just one chapter per week. But in order for us to finish on time, I'm combining these two chapters. And so there's some glorious truths in these two chapters, and as we get to some particular verses, you'll say, well, I know that verse, or I know that verse, or that sounds an awful lot like a verse quoted in the New Testament. And so um, I think you'll enjoy it. Letter A, the Messiah will come in great power and might, here coming back from a great victory. Now let me just set the stage here. He says he's coming from Edom, E-D-O-M, and I'll say more about it, but this is a generic look at the world. He's using Edom as a likeness of the world. So who is coming back from the world with dyed garments from Basra? Basra being a main city in Edom. The prophet Isaiah here sees in his vision this mighty warrior. And his, he's got clothing that is dyed or stained. And we're going to learn soon that it's dyed red or a deep red from the blood of his conquests. The one speaking is obviously the Messiah, declaring that he speaks in righteousness. He comes from victoriously defeating the Edomites. Basra is one of the main cities. Edom, or Moab, is today located in southern Jordan. Edom was a frequent enemy to Israel. 
You might remember that Esau hated his brother Jacob for stealing his birthright. That hatred was passed along to Esau's descendants, who were the Edomites. Edom refused to give passage to Israel during their exodus from Egypt in Numbers 20. When Babylon conquered Judah, Edom, instead of helping them, rejoiced in their conquering and mocked their hardships in Psalm 137. Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus soon after he was born, by making a decree for all boys to and under to be killed, was an Edomite. Herod Antipas, who mocked Jesus before sending him to Pilate to be condemned, was also an Edomite. And I see in my notes I made a mistake. It's not Herod, it's Herod. <laughs> in Jeremiah 49, 13, For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. All right, so the chapter opens up with this mighty warrior, we learn it's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming in, in blood-stained garments because of the victory that he has won in the world or in Edom. And we learn this is uh, actually the Battle of Armageddon. And verse number two, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Letter B, the Messiah's garments will be stained with blood. Described are the garments of Jesus following his great destruction of the world's power symbolized by Edom. His garments will drip with their blood as the clothing of those stomping on grapes to release their juice get stained, so will Jesus' garments bear the bloodstains of his violent victory. And I don't know, it does not say one way or another, but it does not discourage me from believing that this is literal. Meaning, Jesus, as the Messiah, in his righteous robes, may actually be stained with blood, the point being, here is this, this stark white robe that has splatters of blood all over it from his victory. Verse number three, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled above my garments, and I will stain all my remnant. Letter C. The wrath of the Lamb will be unleashed in fury during the tribulation. Here the Messiah confirms that his garments are stained from treading out the winepress. However, he continues to explain how the grapes he pressed were actually the armies of his enemies, described as being the Edomites. The wrath of the Lamb is revealed here, a time in the tribulation when the Lord will return in glory and great strength and will destroy his enemies at the battle of Armageddon. So he's describing this victory like a man out in a grape vat, in a, in a wine vat, and is full of grapes, and he's barefoot, and he's squishing the grapes, squishing the grapes, squishing the grapes, and of course, the juice is coming out all over him, and he's getting stained at the bottom of his garments there as he's walking on the grapes. Well, the picture is walking on his enemies and squashing his enemies as the blood freely, freely flows. 
Verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart. Now that's significant. This is the Messiah talking. Jesus. What is in his heart? Well, love for you and for me, right? God so loved the world, he gave his son to die for us. He loves us. There's something else in his heart. We learn it's vengeance. And the year of my redeemed has come. Letter D, God's wrath comes abruptly, while his mercy endures long. Now, I would have not noticed that, I don't think, except for a commentary to point it out. But notice in verse number 4, it mentions a day, and then it mentions a year. A day of vengeance, and then a year of my redeemed. For a long time, the Lord has been storing up wrath for the day of his vengeance. Because of the harsh treatment his people have received over the centuries, the heart of the Lord will be prepared to execute judgment upon those enemies. But it's interesting that the Lord refers to the time of his judgment as being a day, while the time of his redeemed is a year. The great contrast between his mercy and his judgment is on full display here. He mercifully waits long for his people to respond to him while he releases his heavy hand of judgment very quickly. Now, very quickly from his perspective, from his perspective, um, Psalm, the book of Psalms says, For his mercy endureth forever. So his mercy is long. But now he said earlier, I think we mentioned last week, where he was bringing judgment, and he says, I'm going to have wrath on you or anger, but it'll be just for a moment. And we talked about how long that moment was. And in reality, that moment has stretched now over many, 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 many centuries. So that wrath is continuing. It will continue through the tribulation. He says it's but for a moment. But now, compare the two. Numbers of centuries compared to eternity. So judgment compared to eternity. Mercy forever. Judgment for a while. And that's what's on display here, this contrast between the judgment of the Lord and his mercy, which endures forever. In Isaiah 34, verse 8, it says, For it is of the day, it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. A day of vengeance and a year of recompenses. In Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. So there's a year of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord, and a day of vengeance. So this thought is repeated several times in the scriptures. In verse 5, And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. Letter E, Jesus singularly will defeat his enemies at Armageddon. Here's a, a reference to the individual work of Christ. When the Lord returns, will he come back alone? When he returns to set up his millennial kingdom, will he come back alone? No, he will not. We will be coming with him. We will be coming with him. A great army of the redeemed will be coming with him as he comes back to earth. However, 
we don't get a fight. He is going to win the battle single-handedly. With the sword of his mouth, he said. He single, singularly will win the battle, which is being talked about here in verse number 5. Jesus went to the cross and died alone. He, here in Armageddon, will destroy alone. This verse may suggest also the hopelessness of his enemies in that day. There will be none to help them from his fury. In Isaiah 59, verse 16, there's a similar uh, verse. It says, And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. Very similar. Verse 6, And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. I will bring down their strength to the earth. Letter F. The fury of the Messiah will bring utter destruction to his enemies. We see repeated references to working with grapes, treading down wine press, um, um, uh, uh, being out there and trampling the grapes. Why? Because he's talking to a people in that agricultural system where they have many, many vineyards and they're used to working with grapes. So he's using these analogies because they understand the concept. So great will be the release of the Lord's anger in that day. No man nor any of his armies will be able to stand against it. His fury will destroy all the world's forces gathered to bring an end once and for all to Israel and its affiliation with their God. The Lord will bring certain destruction to the Antichrist and all his armies, leaving an end of his reign of terror only those who have called upon him for salvation. All others will have been destroyed. Letter F was the fury of the Messiah will bring utter destruction to his enemies. Verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. What a change. <laughs> and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. So we've gone from this battle describing him trampling out all of his enemies and blood spattering all over him. It's just a gruesome, gruesome sight. We jump into verse number 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. He didn't sound very loving kind. Full of wrath and anger. I don't get the impression that he's being full of kindness. Ah. Letter G, the redeemed of the Lord will praise him for his salvation. So from beyond the Messiah's victory at Armageddon, the redeemed will rejoice in their salvation. As they consider their deliverance from the Antichrist and the fury of the world toward them, they begin to praise the name of their Lord and sing his praises. Their traumas will turn into melodies of praise thanking the Lord for his mercy and redemption. So just imagine a, a Jew that gets saved during the tribulation, and they're seeing all these wonders going on and all the plagues and all the traumas of the tribulation. And in, in one event, a third of the world's population is decimated. Another one, another third is decimated. 
So massive, massive killings going on during this. There's, there's a, a celestial events going on. I mean, everything around them, massive, massive earthquakes. Then, then they are at the very end of the tribulation, and the sky breaks open, and the Lord Jesus comes in his glory. Following him is this massive army. There are some Jews who are going to see this, and all this trauma going on. And then the Lord comes down, and he destroys all of his enemies, and they're just standing there with their mouths agape. can't believe what I'm seeing here. On the other side of that now, they're looking back. They're still in this state of bewilderment, and they realize God saved them. The Lord saved them. They're saved. They are the, among the righteous now, the ones going to start the millennium under the reign and rule of the Messiah. And there he is. This is incredible. And so they're praising him, and their trauma turns to songs of praise. That's what's being described here. As we go into Roman numeral 2, which is Israel's great deliverer. Verse number 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. Letter A, following Armageddon, again, we're now past the great battle, Israel will stand righteous before their Savior. How can Israel stand righteous? Because all the unrighteous will have been destroyed. Only the saved will be going into the millennium. The Lord lovingly claims the redeemed as his own. As he saved them, he also will sanctify them. The fires of the tribulation had burned away the impurities of their hearts, leaving them righteous and holy as they stand before their Savior. In that moment, and perhaps only in that moment, just beyond the Battle of Armageddon, realizing their salvation, understanding what they've come through, and it's been nothing short of traumatic. They're standing face to face with their Redeemer, their Savior. The Bible says there, they will not lie. Now what happened? Did their free will get stolen from them? I'm going to say, and just step on a limb here, I'm going to say that in that moment, when the reality of what's occurred hits them, they will not lie because they will be completely empty before their Lord. They're His and they are enjoying their salvation for that moment. How long will it last? We don't know. What we do know is that generation that starts the millennium where they take off and they start having babies who grow up and have babies who grow up and have babies, by the end of the thousand years, we know that the greatest number of people at the end of the millennium that started with all saved people, at the end of the millennium, most of them will rise a great army against the Lord. They will be unsaved heathens at the end of the millennium. So how long will that will not lie last? I don't know. Next, verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. 
and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Letter B, Israel was blessed with a faithful high priest. The passion for his people is clearly seen in this verse. He loved his people. And as a faithful high priest, he was touched with the feeling of their infirmities. When Israel was afflicted, he empathized for them. His presence was with them and often saved them from their enemies. Throughout all of their trials, down through the generations, the Lord carried them as a parent would his child. Number three. Israel had made an enemy of their God. Verse 10. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Now the view changes to looking back on Israel's sinful past. And if you're not careful, you're going to get whiplash here, going back and forth, back through the Battle of Armageddon, all the way to the millennium, to the end millennium, then all the way back to Isaiah's day, then back to Babylon, and back to the millennium, and then back, back and forth. So try to keep up, and it's tough. Over and over again, Israel chose rebellion over submission to God. They found greater satisfaction in chasing after false gods than in following their own God. So the Spirit of the Lord was vexed. They grieved the Holy Spirit like we can grieve the Holy Spirit. His anger was kindled against them. The loving relationship he longed to share with his people was replaced by fierce judgment. The Lord stirred the hearts of their enemies to afflict them for their stubbornness. Repeatedly, the Lord became Israel's enemy and fought against them to try and wake them up. Letter A, Israel's past rebellion against their God made a great enemy. When, uh, when during the day I would act up as a child and my mom would say, usually after spanking me, she said, now you wait till your dad gets home. Now I'm sure my dad didn't come home desirous of having a friction time with his son. I'm sure my dad came home hoping to have a nice relaxing evening and spend time playing with his son. But instead, he had to face this time of discipline before he could get on with the rest of his time. What Jesus was longing for, what was God was longing for, was a time of sweet fellowship with his people. But he couldn't have it. They wouldn't let him have it because they were out there worshiping false gods, chasing idols. And so he, brought, had to bring, he had to bring judgment instead. But God was looking forward to the day in the millennium where he once again could have that open, sweet fellowship. By the way, the kind of open fellowship that he shared with Adam in the garden. That's what he's longing for. Verse number 11. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Letter B, in their trials, Israel cried out for their deliverer. The perspective now changes to that of Israel. Likely crying out during the tribulation, Israel's asking, God, where are you? The Lord used Moses to lead their people out of Egypt. Who will now become their deliverer? the one in whom the Spirit of the Lord will inhabit. Verse 12, That led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, 
dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. Letter C, God had powerfully delivered Israel in the past, but where is he now? You ever asked that question? In a time of trial? God, you, you did these things for me in the past. You always delivered me in the past, but I need you now. Where are you now? That was Israel's plea. Verse 13. That led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. Letter D. As God had led them before, they pleaded that he would again. They continued to plead for God's help in their trials during the tribulation. As he had led them through the deep or over the rough seas, and as he had made time smooth for them like the open plain or the wilderness for the horse to run freely without fear of stumbling, so he can lead and protect Israel in their journeys. And they called out to him. Psalm 106, verse 9, He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. They remembered those, mag those wonderful times in the past of God's deliverance. But now in the tribulation, they say, where are you, God? Verse 14. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Letter E. Israel looked back to the Lord's faithfulness to them in the past. Israel remembered how God had faithfully led them in the past. Like a shepherd would gently lead his flock from the hills into the valley to find rest. So the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest in times before. The Lord had been a faithful guide and shepherd to his flock. They realized he was seeking to make his name known throughout the earth. In other words, things are starting to click. Israel is fine. In the tribulation time, Israel is starting to put pieces together and give God praise for things they should have been praising Him before. before. Lord, we know you did this in the past. And Lord, we know you were strong in the past. And we know we gave praise to you here. We need you now. Number four, Israel pleaded with God to save them. Verse 15, look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory, where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Letter A, Israel pleaded with the Lord to save them mightily. God, look down from heaven. See what we're going through here. God, we're in this tribulation time. Take notice of this. Now, there's something I found enlightening in this passage. God, where is your zeal and your strength? It's not doubting his strength. It's saying, where is it now? We know you're strong, Lord, but why are not using your strength to help us now? And then it says, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me. When, uh, when you go for a time, perhaps, and you haven't eaten for a while, and your stomach growls, here's what I picture this to mean. And it could mean something totally different, but here's what I think it means. If, if, if I were not mic'd up right now, 
and my stomach were to growl, you probably couldn't hear it. But if you got close enough, you could. So if you were up on your stage with me, and we were a couple feet apart, and my stomach growled, you, you very likely would hear it. Um, you're not close to us, Lord. We were close to you before. We were so close we could hear your stomach growling. But now, now we're, we're away from you. Lord, we need you to be close to us now, is, is one application here. They pleaded with the Lord to save them mightily. Verse 16. Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Letter B, Israel will finally put their trust in God alone. And this is huge. This, this verse here is, is really a pivotal verse in Israel's response to the Lord. They said here, Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Their whole concept of their worth was found in their pedigree. They were Jews. They wore the badge. They're a Jew. So they're righteous with God because they're a Jew. And God from the beginning says, no, that's not it. It's not because of who you are. It's because of what you are, what's in your heart. I want your heart. They said, but Lord, we're a Jew, so we're good with you. We're going to heaven because we're a Jew. Well, the prophets repeatedly said, no, it's your heart, your heart's condition. Now, finally, finally, they're starting to understand. Israel in the tribulation will consider their relationship with their God. For too long, they as a nation had relied on their official pedigree as one of God's chosen people instead of a personal relationship with God. They would now choose God regardless of their heritage. Whether the patriarchs would own them or not, they had committed themselves to God finally and once and for all. In that day, Israel will put their dependence upon the Lord, their Redeemer, and magnify His name. And there's a lot of applications here. Israel was so, um, so careful to take down uh, genealogies. They were so careful to keep genealogies of all the different families. But once in a while, for one reason or another, there would either be somebody that was denied from it, or in their uh, Babylonian captivity, they lost many of the genealogies during that time. There's a lot of reasons, but here I believe he's saying, whether Abraham recognized us or not, whether we are in an official genealogy or not, finally we understand. It's not the badge. It's the heart. And this is, this is just huge. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. Verse 17, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance. Letter C. Israel cries out to God to return and save them. As the tribulation reaches its peak before the Lord's return, God's people cry out to Him in that intense time 
asking why they have been allowed to go their own ways and develop hardened hearts toward him. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? O Lord, why hast thou made us to err? And, and why did you harden our hearts? God, we're in this horrible situation. We went the wrong way. We've got hard hearts. Why did you do that? <laughs> why did he do that? Now, now, what's encouraging here is we're starting to see a breakthrough in this veil of misunderstanding. But it's not immediate. It is a process now that's beginning. And as this veil starts to, starts to come away, all these questions and misperceptions, and so they begin to come through it, and they start to realize how wrong they are, but their first response is to blame somebody. It's your fault, God. Your fault. Now, it goes on. And uh, verse 18. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. So, letter D. Gentile nations will invade the land and desecrate it during the tribulation. This appears to be during the tribulation, as Israel bemoans the destruction of the Gentile nations to their land. As many had come to Jerusalem in the last days and had begun to establish homes and yards there, only to be overrun by the enemy. Even the rebuilt temple in the millennium will be attacked by Gentile invaders. Verse 19. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Letter E. Israel claimed their relationship with Jehovah God. In that day, Israel will call out to the Lord and remind him that he was their God. He had never been the God of the enemy nations. During tribulation, probably the fiercest aggressors will be Islamic. Islamic Arab nations over whom God has never reigned. Now, it's interesting because you talk to an Arab and they say, we both serve the same God. We call it different names. You call your God Jehovah, we call our name Allah. Well, let me tell you, they're not the same God. Not at all. And so don't fall for that. And so in that day, they're saying they worship a different God, and they're exactly right. All right, we're ready for chapter 61, 64, and so buckle up, because I'm going to go faster now to get through this chapter. 64, verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Letter F. Israel will cry out from the center of the world's attacks. Israel will be the epicenter of all the nations that are attacking them. Of course, the Lord will come in power and glory, causing the Mount, Mount of Olives to be split in two. Their prayer will, in fact, be answered then. They said, let the mountains might flow down at thy presence. God will answer that. Now, verse 2, as when the melting fire burneth. Interesting terminology, a melting fire. The fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Letter G, Israel pleads for the Lord to come in great power. Are we talking perhaps about volcanoes here? I, I don't know. Israel prays that God will come in great power to make his name great known, his, his great name known. Oh, that he would come with a searing heat, causing the nations to tremble 
at his appearance. Roman number five, God's unimaginable blessings awaiting the faithful. Verse three, when thou didst terrible things, which we look not for, thou camest down. The mountains flowed down at thy presence. Letter A, Israel thought they could not be surprised by anything else. <laughs> and then the Lord returned. <laughs> this is incredible. They had gone through the tribulation. They had seen the most horrific events. And they're saying toward the end of the tribulation, boy, nothing can surprise us anymore. We've seen it all. But they hadn't, because about then, the sky splits and the Lord returns, blowing their minds. Before the Lord's glorious return, Israel will have witnessed remarkable events, but nothing will compare with what they see when the Lord returns. Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath this eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. That if you're paying real close attention, that probably sounds to you a lot like a New Testament verse. Letter B, the faithful cannot begin to imagine what God has prepared for their future. And perhaps it's because Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. But as it is written, referring to this verse, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Verse 5. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. Letter C. God mercifully forgives and saves the penitent. Though God graciously comes to and meets those who rejoice and work righteousness, such was not currently the condition of Israel. They were in a wicked state, and they angered God. But in that day, Israel will acknowledge their sin and confess it to God, and God will mercifully forgive them and save them. Number six, Israel's true confession. Their true confession. Verse six, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Letter A. Israel will finally confess their sinful condition. And again, in the context here, these verses become so incredibly powerful. You undoubtedly refer, have referred to this passage at one time or another, saying all our righteousness are as filthy rags. So, so familiar. But to understand the context in which it's given, Israel will stand broken and empty before their God. They will recognize the wickedness in their hearts for the first time in reality, standing there confessing their sin before God. Verse 7, And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us, because of our iniquities. Letter B. Israel will finally see how they ignored their God. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. Notice, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. 
Letter C, Israel would finally commit themselves to the will of God in their lives. For the first time, Israel said, okay, Lord, we're just clay. Make of us what you want. He used that analogy of the potter and the clay repeatedly, but Israel was always the ones who were resistant to his workings. And they were always marred as he would go to work the clay. They were marred. But here, finally, they say, okay, Lord, you do with us whatever you like. Verse 9, be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are thy people. D, Israel pleaded with God to no longer remember their sins. Once Israel finally recognized how wicked they had been, they pleaded with God to remember their sins no more. They would make a confession that they knew and were willing to be God's people, but his way. <laughs> and that's significant. Number seven, is Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's pending destructions. Verse 10, thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Letter A, Jerusalem would experience multiple destructions. When Isaiah received this prophecy, it looked forward to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in just a few years. But it also looked to the destruction by the Antichrist during the tribulation, during which time Jerusalem would again be destroyed. In verse 11, our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praised thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Letter B, Israel's temples will be destroyed. History tells of the Temple of Solomon being destroyed by the Romans, 70 AD. Apparently, the rebuilt temple during the tribulation, or the millennial temple, will also be destroyed along with many other treasures held dear by the people. And then verse 12, Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Letter C, Israel pleads with God to stop the destruction. They will cry out to God to put a stop to the destruction of all they consider holy. Their city and their temple will be destroyed before their eyes in the tribulation, and they will be helpless to stop it. Their cry becomes one of desperation. And that, chapter 63 and 64. And they are incredible chapters. And I told the folks this afternoon, I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and having both Isaiah and the Lord teach us this book. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? Wow. And they're going to say, you really blew it, fella. <laughs> this is what we meant by that. So I'm looking forward to it. But I so appreciate your being here tonight. Let's have a prayer, and we'll bring this part to a conclusion. Dear Lord, thank you for your love. And thank you for these amazing chapters and such, such rich treasures found in them. And Lord, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So, Spirit of God, would you take these lessons, and I pray that you might help us to apply them to our lives. And Lord, we'll thank you. We'll thank you for being our sovereign God, for having our future in your hands. 
And I pray, Lord, that in the time that we have left, that we will be energetic at spreading your good news. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.